Uh, we just got back from our men's retreat. I want to say um, a special thank you uh, to Pastor John Fox and Paul Benitez for their hard work in putting together this retreat. Yes, we can clap. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, phenomenal job. Uh, our friend Pastor Bryant Lee from the Higher Expectation Church in Humble came and taught our men. He actually came wearing what do they call BDUs, Army guys? Uh, BTUs? BD? I don't know. Uh, whatever. Camouflage. Anyway, so. <laughs> He came wearing camouflage, and, uh, and, and uh, Paul set us up and did a wonderful job encouraging our men, and we talked about basically three sessions of Bible study, how to break down and study your Bible using the SOAP method, then the next session we talked about the importance of prayer and how to get organized and intentional in our prayer life, and then the last session we talked about biblical community, which was a good a reminder from what um, John Wagner taught from Acts chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. And so it was a wonderful time. Ladies, if your husband went and he came back a little bit nicer, wanting to pray with you. Um, be patient with him if he sounds like a drunk oaf uh, when he prays, oh God, uh, oh, bless us or something, you know, because we got to start somewhere, amen? All right, we got to start somewhere. Uh, and it, it'll be painful for a bit, but it should get better. So uh, we are in Acts, and so we're moving quickly through the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is a historical book teaching us what happens and what life in the church was like when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent His Holy Spirit, and compelled and sent His apostles to go and spread and share the gospel and to see the church grow and multiply and bring transformation um, beginning around Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The main point of the entire series of Acts is that the people God sends are those who have experienced Jesus and are being led by the Holy Spirit. The people God sends are those who have experienced Jesus and are being led by the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to begin in chapter 4 this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and start reading from the beginning so we get a high overview of what's going on. And then about verse 13, we're going to pull up the, the brakes a little bit, slow down, and start digging in. But I want you to see what's happening. Remember, Jesus didn't take very long in his ministry to begin getting in trouble with religious leaders. And in the same way, we get to the whole fourth chapter. So Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, commissioning his apostles in chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes. The gospel is proclaimed. The church begins. Acts chapter 3, on the way to the temple, they heal a man and bring explanation around their proclamation. And then now we're in chapter 4. They're already in trouble. Pick up with me in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple... And the Sadducees came upon them. The Sadducees were a religious sect of Judaism that were high, powerful, socialite people. They were a little bit light on Judaism and wanted more um, favor with and influence in the Roman Empire, and they wanted to dictate what would happen in the temple as well. And so they were movers and shakers, if you will, political, um, typically wealthy, but they did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees and Zealots and other groups did believe in a literal, physical, bodily re resurrection. Sadducees did not. And so when, when these guys are preaching resurrection, they're starting to, people are starting to pay attention to them because they're, as we'll see, they're speaking with authority. And so we've got this group of people coming in, kind of the security guys and uh, the other group coming in to kind of see what's going on. And we'll see in a minute, try to put a kibosh on it. Verse 2, greatly annoyed, that's a fun translation out of the Greek, greatly annoyed, deeply bothered by, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. 
And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came about 5,000. Came to about 5,000. So we're not talking about like uh, three guys coming forward praying the prayer. We're talking mass revival happening, and they're like, we have to stop this thing. We, we've got to, to quell it. We, we cannot allow this momentum to pick up because it is going to greatly disorient the way we do things. On their next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were high priests in the high priestly family. So there's a high priest emeritus and then the high priest who's there. That's why they're naming two high priests. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, circle that, underline it, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Okay, so two, uh, two disagreeable statements. You killed, God rose. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Very clear statement. There is no other name by which you can be rescued or saved other than that of Jesus Christ. Amen. No other name. No other religion. No other sect, no other name, but that of Jesus Christ. And the name of Jesus Christ is not merely a name that we would conjure up, like some superstition. But the name of Jesus Christ represents the power of God raising dead things to life. The name of Jesus Christ represents the power of God to once and for all make a sacrificial payment for sin so that whomever believes in the powerful name of Jesus will not perish apart from God, but be rescued and eternally saved by God for the purpose of the glory of God. And so the main theme as we start slowing down and and lowering into verse 13 is this, the gospel disorients, it emboldens, and unifies people for a grand and eternal mission. The gospel disorients, emboldens, and unifies people for a grand and eternal mission. It shakes it up. If you're looking for comfortable, predictable, easy, then you need another religion. If you're looking for salvation, and for forgiveness of sin, and deliverance from temptations that overwhelm you, and habits that break you, and relationships that destroy you, if you're willing to lose your life so that you might really gain it, then there's a man named Jesus I'd like for you to meet today. Because the gospel is not one of putting things together nicely and tidy. The gospel is not baby Jesus coming to the door of your heart, knocking lightly and saying, oh, please... Please open, guys. Please let me in. I'll make you better. That's how we preach the gospel most of the time. 
Oh guys, please love God. Please. God needs you to love Him. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel isn't a friendly door-to-door salesman peddling a better life. It is a wrecking ball that comes in and crushes all that's destroying you, disorients everything, and says, now, let's put it back together. And it's better than Humpty Dumpty. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness, so the religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, remember Peter's the one that denied Jesus three times, chopped off Malchus's ear, even though Jesus was like, hey, calm down. And then denied, so he denied Jesus, chopped ears off, and then kind of ran away. And he was like, he gave up on life and ministry, went back to fishing, and Jesus had to go chase after him and say, hey, no, 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 come on. Do you love me? Of course I love you. Do you love me? Of course I love you. Do you love me? It broke his heart. Yes, of course I love you. Then feed my sheep. Jesus is like, now that you've fully jacked up, Will you let me lead you now? And then John, John's the one most likely that ran away naked when Jesus was arrested. John doesn't like sign his name to it in the Gospel of John, but he's like the one that Jesus loved, the young one was streaking away. That's who's bold now. So I just want to say this, Christians, to you. Maybe you've been a coward up to this point. Maybe you haven't had courage to speak the word with boldness. Maybe you haven't had the unction of the Spirit to encourage one another in faith. You need the Holy Spirit, not not just trying harder. Because when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the betrayer and the fleer, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus That's important. I remember talking to a guy. They were in a very educated part of the country. And he told me that um, there's a lot of professors. There's an Ivy League area. A lot of professors. No, it's actually in California. And and it was, but a very well-known university. And basically, they would always debate. Like So the pastors who had all their PhDs, they would debate the faith and go back and forth. And so they said, the thing that we found that worked actually the best in evangelism with professors is we had a mechanic, we'll just call him Joe, at the church. And Joe dropped out of high school in 10th grade, got saved when he was 19. He's now in his early 50s. He loves Jesus. He reads the Bible a bunch. He's never been to seminary or college. And so what we do for those professors is we send them Joe. And they try to argue all these high theoretical, philosophical stuff, and he'll just, sleep, and he'll just tell them, like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about, but here's what I do know. I was dead in sin. My life was over. I was addicted. I was broken. And then I met a guy named Jesus, and everything's changed. And God would use a foolish guy like that way more than He would the other professors. And the Bible talks about God likes to use a foolish thing. And before I went to seminary, I loved this, these verses. I was like, yeah. And then I went to seminary, I was like, uh-oh. But the key isn't what they knew or didn't know. The key is that they had been in the presence of Jesus. Is there something uniquely different about your life? Not that you're just trying harder, but because you've been overwhelmed by the presence of God in your life. The people beginning in your home notice that there's a change, something different. 
See, a lot of us, we want to make it into, well, what are five things I have to do differently right now to do differently in order to look different? Well, that's not going to work because you can't keep it up. These are people empowered by the Spirit who have been in the presence of God. They've been with Jesus. They've seen what He does. They, they watched how He responded. They watched when they were pummeling Him and beating Him. He said, God, God forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He saw that when he was concerned up on the cross being killed, he, he forgave one of the thieves and then made sure his mom was going to be taken care of. These guys had been around the king who held on to no rights and became nothing. And so when they came speaking, not of highfalutin theological terms, but with the gospel, 5,000 people turned from their sin, and hoped in Christ. My fear is in our culture, we treat Jesus like an enhancement to our life rather than one who actually gives it. We treat Jesus like an enhancement rather than the life giver. And Some of you have been hoping in Jesus to make your perfect life a little bit perfecter. Let me help you. Your sin taints everything. Well, I'm not that bad, you might say. I used to travel and speak at a lot of youth camps. It was fun for the first two weeks. The second eight weeks was not fun. It was a calling. But I heard a speaker get up one time and said this. He said, hey, how much sin is okay? There's a lot of Texan guys. I worked hard on my accent to not sound like him. How much sin is okay? And the kids are like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, so if I'm making brownies and I put just a little bit of cat poop, but I mix it all in. It's a big batch. Would you eat it? Now, some seventh grade boys would be like, yeah. I mean, how much are we talking? I mean, it, there's a law of dissip, you know, dissipation and I get street cred. But most of us, when we start realizing the effect of sin, and how dangerous it is, and how costly it is. And if you don't believe that any of your sin is costly, look to the cross. The brutalization of our Lord Jesus is just a physical manifestation of the depravity and depth and the cost of our moral failure. <laughs> so, they were astonished because they're blown away because they recognized he had been with Jesus. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, they had like evidence. These guys had like degrees and could articulate the best preachers out there. But these guys had tangible, transformative, different evidence. The crippled guy from Acts 3 was standing there with them. Fine. And he'd been there so long that it wasn't like, hey, let's get this fake crippled guy. We'll put him out there for a week and then all of a sudden he'll start walking. No, they, they knew this guy. He'd been there for a long, long time. And so they said, well, what shall we do with these? But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? Good question. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. No, you cannot. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How do you think that went? 
I'll point you to Acts 5 and 6 and 7. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Can't help it. See, if you've been with Jesus, you speak of it. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you're more concerned for the soul of those who don't know God than your reputation. And when they had further threatened them, so they're getting threatened more, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of, the, all, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Scott, you and I are now more than 40. Josh, this guy was more than our age. Now the world looks at us like, that's not that old. But back then, that's like you're getting up there. You're getting discounts at Luby's. You're eating before the sun goes down. Supper. That's after your dinner, which is lunchtime. You're welcome, Texas. So the first thing we can see is the gospel disorients our life and confronts our self-righteous religious pride. The gospel exposes and disorients our life and confronts our self-righteous religious pride because in this... I want to identify with Peter and John, but I can oftentimes now, being in the faith for a season, err more on the side of the Sadducees and the scribes and the judges. When things happen that make me feel out of control or I can't explain or outside of my, outside of my sphere of understanding, my, my first re- reflex, reflexive action is to judge it rather than explore it. I'm quick to, judge, uh, to, to jump to condemnation rather than curiosity. And so, we have to understand that, that disorientation around the gospel, when the gospel comes in and moves and grows and stretches and transforms, the disorientation we found is meant to get us off of the things that we orient on, the, the focal point of our lives. It takes away our idols. It takes away our false identities. It takes away the things that we find life in and says, no more of that. Come back to Christ. You've heard me say this a lot. Maybe you've never paid attention to it, but many of us, especially in our culture, have a tendency to treat the gospel of Jesus like a nice pair of training wheels. That we need it to be able to get up and running, but once we get our own balance and get ahead in our own life, then we no longer need that support of God. Instead, we want to lead it ourselves. And we end up becoming more like scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees rather than men and women that have been in the presence of Jesus. Look, I think podcasts and articles and books are fantastic, but as Pastor Bryant reminded us this weekend, if we're reading a bunch of things and listening to a bunch of things and looking at a bunch of things that are about God, but we're not going to the very Word of God, then we're missing God altogether. Actually, Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, any good book ought to compel you back to the Word of God. I recently read a nonfiction book called Endurance. I highly recommend you. Most of us men are recovering from Wissaria in America. Right? We're in Wissaria recovery mode. Most of our life is formed and and the intended to be comfortable 
And so our aim of the gospel is to avoid discomfort and to provide comfort. That's what we've delineated and cheapened the gospel down to. There's a book called Endurance about this, this crew of men who um, left Great Britain in the early 1900s to make a trip down to Antarctica on a ship to capture photos and a great expedition. And oddly enough, they got stuck in ice and a whole bunch of bad stuff happened. But through all of it, I'm going to spoiler alert, so if you're going to go read it and don't want any spoiler alert, plug your ears, but let me tell you this, not a man was lost. I can't say that for the dogs that they took, the sled dogs. Yummy. But, you're welcome. Dogs are not humans, I'm sorry. And apparently they're tasty. But anyway, so... We have a, yeah, but I mean, they go through this and we, we see how God's provisional care at just the right moment spared these men's lives. And there's a moment at the end, and I, I hope you go read it. I'm not going to, but there's a moment where they said in that moment when we took this huge risk, we did something that we could not see the result. There were two men and they said, but it felt like a third was with us. See, these men were believers in Jesus. At least some of them were. And they said in that moment, it was like a third person was with us to endure to the end of the goal that set out before. Their life was completely disoriented. And it had to be reoriented ultimately on the One that was able to deliver them. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, he quotes Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers uh, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God's plan was never out of control. It was always God's plan to crush Jesus. It was always His plan to use God's chosen people, Israel, to show and illustrate their act of rebellion against the word and prophecies of God, to destroy the person of God and the person of Jesus. It was God's will to utilize the Pontius Pilate and Herod, the Gentiles who raged against the things of God, to physically destroy His body and to try to quash the way. But it says here, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. None of these actions were happening outside of God's will. It didn't spin out of God's control. It wasn't God like, what am I going to do? Jesus Christ had always been a part of God's plan. So when you look at the question, why did God ever put the tree in the Garden of Evil? Or the Garden of Eden? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Became the Garden of Evil. Or is actually still preserved. I just messed up. It was not. It was not. Garden of Eden... But why do you put the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, when we see the triune God creating the heavens and the earth, knowing that Jesus was always a part of the plan, we can start having better theological discussions. See, a lot of times people treat Jesus as an afterthought or an after creation to deal with the problem when he was always part of the grand solution and the grand plan. That's why we say we can trust Jesus is because he's always been. 
Nothing happens outside of the will and authority of God. And God's will and authority is always good, even if it's not easy. He goes on in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Let's first look at what's not being said. Number one is this. It's not a list. I'm just, I'm just telling you this. The first thing that's not said is, God, make this easy. In fact, it says, God, uh, you appointed all those people to kill your son. And later we find that all but one is killed later, apostles. So it doesn't say, make it easy. Another thing it doesn't say is, quash our enemies. There's a, there's a great word from the Psalms. There's, there's some Psalms that are what imprecatory Psalms, where there's Psalms of like, where, I mean, you read like Psalm 109, it's like, God, deliver me, blah, blah, blah. Although they wag their hands at me and they shake their heads at me, blah, blah, blah. But I hope you'll come and crush them. And he starts, David just goes off, man. Turn their teeth to dust. Let their children be fatherless and poor. That's in the Bible. Thank God for Jesus, amen? Holy moly, now we can pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, not like turn their teeth to dust. I mean, the visibility of that would be pretty amazing, but I don't know, but... <laughs> doesn't say make it easy, doesn't say, hey, it's going to be a cakewalk. They're not praying for that. What do they pray for? They pray for boldness. To speak the truth. And they pray for their authority. That They don't ask for miracles just so they make life easier. They ask for miracles to authenticate the powerful message. If a miracle isn't produced for the sake of authenticating the message, then it's not really helpful. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look at their threats. He doesn't say stop them. It says, and then grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Through the name of Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not saying build a name for ourselves, get our ministry up and running. It's saying, no, give us boldness to speak the truth because it's life or death. It's eternal. And they were all filled. Look what happened. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. See, a lot of times today people go after being filled with the Holy Spirit so they might feel better about their own sin and be delivered from their own sin and to make their lives more advantageous for their family. But really, the boldness that they're asking for and the filling of the Spirit is meant to be an overflow into ministry of declaration, proclamation, and explanation of the gospel of Jesus. So why are we asking for the Holy Spirit just to keep our eyes away from the computer screen or phone screen, men? Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to not only deliver us from our sin, but also to give us a grander view and boldness and authority to speak the gospel. Because let me tell you, when you're pouring yourself out into your family and into your neighbors and into um, your enemies, temptation to go and feed your own sin becomes less appealing. 
Number two is this, the Holy Spirit empowers believers to face threats, to trust in His care, and to boldly speak the Word. I had a friend recently, he took his son to Uganda on a missions trip, and uh, his son is uh, Braylon's age, he's 12, young, sweet kid, um, and they went to Uganda, and there was a riot in a city based over work and food and things like that, and they got to a place, and they were throwing rocks and sticks, and, and they, they were stuck, and the people surrounded their car, and there was no place out. And they just began praying. And I remember they were able to get out. They had some security guys with them. They were able to get out and run to another house. And they were hunkered down with people all surrounding and just began praying and asking God for deliverance. And I remember they posted a prayer on a private group on Facebook saying, hey, please pray. Um, there's a riot going on. We need to be delivered out. Please, please pray. And, and you know, I remember saying a prayer. Um, and they were eventually able to be released and able to articulate the gospel. See, a lot of times you hear stories like that, and I hear a lot of people say this, but I don't know if I could do that. You ever thought that? Hey, you need to go share the gospel with your neighbor in a very life-giving, not weird way. What's most people's response? Besides Paul Benitez. Paul Benitez is a Simeon coach. Amen, Paul? There you go. But most of us are like, I don't know how I could do that. Hey, in the face of persecution, bless people. I don't know how I could do that. I could never do that. But that's a good place to be. But that's the first step. The first step is I can't do that, but God can. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. And God never sends us out, fortunately, in isolation or in independence. He sends us out in community. So that may mean that you take two people with you and go out and share the gospel. All you introverts, find a chatty friend. There's plenty here. I don't know how I could do that. I don't know how I could do that. I don't Good. But don't be an atheist. You serve a powerful God who, if you look at the Old Testament, spoke out of the mouth of a donkey one time. So he can use a scared introvert or a chatty extrovert. Read your Bible, do what it says, you'll have something to say. I don't know if I could do that. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, so there's this unity, and no one said anything of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And next week in Acts 5 is going to be real. So you better go read and then pray about your tithe. You'll know what I'm talking about if you read it. Number three is this. The Holy Spirit unifies God's people by helping us to focus on the gospel and pursue that which is most important. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said that many of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, there's a big push today to be um, for or against socialism. 
Um, sharing all things as they have need, reapportionment of goods based upon the will of the government is different than what we're talking about here. This is a reapportionment of goods based upon the will of God at the heart of the people of God, giving graciously and generously because of God's loving provision to them through Jesus. It's different. And so when people try to use the scriptures as an argument for socialism, socialism is at the whim of the government. And if the government was perfect and not, didn't have any humans involved who all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there was no source of, of corruption, then perhaps. But I, I'm not saying I'm for it against, I'm against it. But here's what I'll say. Is part of the reason the government is in, intervening is because the church has failed to serve. Look, go to the poll, put a sign in your yard, fight on Facebook. Oh, Lord, help us. But maybe you, maybe you go help someone that can't help themselves. Maybe you pick up a baby that doesn't have a home. Maybe you're more generous than you think you are. You start becoming more generous than you actually think you are. Maybe you tell yourself this crazy word that we don't like to tell ourselves very much. No. We don't need that. Because one thing I think we're missing is we want to complain about what the government's doing, but the church is inactive. Because the Holy Spirit unifies God's people by helping us to focus on the gospel and pursue what is most important which is the glory of God being expressed through making disciples. Look, go vote, fine. But there's more work to be done than that. Because, uh, just so you know, if you haven't picked up yet, we'll see in Acts, that the church did not have political favor. And Israel was not a, the Roman Empire was not a Christian nation. But they had way more impact than we're currently having. So fight if you need to, but rather than fight, maybe pick up your Bible. Maybe start reading, what should I do? What what does it say about the poor? What does it say about forgiveness? What does it say about grace? What does it say about me serving my wife instead of her just serving me? What does it mean about me coming alongside and helping my husband rather than always critiquing him? What does it mean? And actually trusting the Spirit of God and praying for the things of God and saying, God, not just 10% gross is yours, 100% 100% of what I have is yours. What do you want and need? We saw a glimpse of that, what the church could be after Hurricane Harvey last year. I had friends doing construction and they were looking to have a big pile of money heyday. Problem is, is they were put out of business within three weeks because the church from all over and other organizations from all over came in, put their differences aside and began gutting out houses and helping people in need. Even though all those people weren't necessarily Christians or the church, that is an illustration for us to see of what a unified group of people with a common goal looks like in bringing transformation to the world. It's what's called wartime living. It's called there is a crisis and we are bent on organizing and ordering our lives in a way that we're not going to sit by. But we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to supernaturally use us to make much of His glory so that people come to know Jesus and their lives are changed.
We have friends in Amarillo, at City Church Amarillo, and their statement is they feed over 2,000 meals a day and lunches um, during the summer to inner city kids and families. And their statement is help without hope is no help at all. That help without ever bringing the gospel is really just perpetuating an ongoing need without giving them the eternal solution. And that's our, that's our heart and our hope. Because as a people, we have to come and understand that as we read the book of Acts, we understand that, yes, we're not in first century Israel. We're not in the Roman Empire. But the same Holy Spirit that filled God's people to proclaim His excellencies, to help them grow sacrificially and be generous, is the same Holy Spirit that's given to us that enables us to see and treasure Christ for the first time and then fills us and leads us as we go through life. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us as we open the Word to read the Word of God and be penetrated by it. It's the same Holy Spirit that helps us to forgive one another and bear with each other in love. It's the same Holy Spirit that compels us towards a place of living other, not just because we want to fit into a subculture, but because Christ is all. Church, Christ is all. We need Jesus. And so does the world. Let's pray.